Well, good morning. I'm very glad to be here. I'm Aubrey, one of the pastors, and with Sam and Wilson, I give you my greeting. If you have a Bible with you, a copy of the Bible, please turn to our gospel passage, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. So just to remember the setting, 2,000 years ago, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth was brutally executed by a Roman governor. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead. And from that moment, the world has been a different place. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, this was God in the flesh launching the renewal of all things, launching the new creation, the kingdom of God. So with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the world really did turn a corner. This was the enlightenment. And anything else that claims it was is a chump. This was when the light dawned on the world and a new dawn came into being and everything changed. And the first difference, the first thing that changed is that the darkest and strongest power in the world, the power of death, from that moment, was defeated. And secondly, justice was secured. And third, the forgiveness of sins is on offer. And this is a new reality, and it's really strange, and it's hard to wrap our minds around. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been taking our time going through each of these encounters that Jesus has had with people after his resurrection so that we can try to wrap our minds around what is the new creation? What is the kingdom of God? What is this thing that Jesus launched? And how do we enter into it? And how do we live as members of God's kingdom here in the midst of a world that's broken and outside the kingdom and in need of redemption? And so today we begin one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, John chapter 21. And, and the whole focus of this chapter is on what the resurrection means for us, how it affects us today, what it, how it affects us as individuals and as families, as citizens, as workers. And John chapter 21 is focused on the ways that Jesus' resurrection really has changed things in every domain of life. The new creation he kicked off, it is about every single square inch, every aspect of nature and culture. It's about the renewal of, of humans in their relationship with the creator. And it's about the renewal of humans in our relationship with each other. But not just humans, it's also about the renewal of humans in the way we relate to culture and to creation and to nature and to communities and to cities and to food, everything. And so what we're going to see this morning is that because Jesus' death and resurrection was for the redemption of everything, because of that, the church must refuse to leave the world. It must stand in the world, refusing to abandon any aspect of the world to its own devices. We must see the entire world, every domain 
of individual lives and culture and nature, we must see the whole of existence as the territory where God is building his kingdom. And so this world, that in so many parts of it, gives us so much suffering, we must, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, call it back to God. Every aspect of it. No aspect are we afraid of. Every aspect of this world, of culture and nature, of communities and cities and families and people, every single domain, because of the cross and the resurrection, we call it back to God, we give it hope, we lay our hands on it, and we say, may God's blessing come upon you, and may God renew you, may you be blessed, you were created by God, and you belong to him, you belong to the creator, who is, by the glory of Easter, your redeemer. And that's what's happening in John chapter 21. In this passage, we see the resurrected Jesus in the world, refusing to leave it, but he's in the world that gave him so much suffering. He's talking to the friends who betrayed him and gave him so much suffering. And we see him refusing to abandon his friends, refusing to abandon the world, laying his hands on them, blessing this world, calling it back to himself. And we see him doing this with three particular parts of the world in this first paragraph of John 21. We see him doing it with work. We see him doing it with food. And we see him doing it with evangelism. Let's take each of these in turn. First of all, notice Jesus is redeeming work. Notice verse 3, John 21 verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and they got in the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Jesus had died and risen from the dead. But people still got to eat. This is how he made a living. This, is, this was his vocation. This is what these guys knew how to do. Families still need to be supported. And they failed at it. They struck out. And then just as dawn was breaking, gospel writer John keeps bringing up dawn all through it because he's trying to jam into our imaginations that that's what the resurrection is. It's the new day. It's the new creation. It's the new dawn. And just as dawn is breaking and the sky and the sea are filling with color and they're stretching and shivering and feeling tired and they're ready for food and they're ready for rest, at that moment, Jesus comes to them. And like Mary in the garden... They don't recognize him at first. That's verse 4. Then John 21, verse 5, Jesus greets them, tells them where to throw their net one more time, and wow, was he right. They can barely pull the net. It's filled with so many fish. And then like Mary in the garden, they suddenly recognize it's the Lord Jesus. Now don't spiritualize this. This is just a day at work. What is God showing us about work? Remember, Jesus had given these disciples work to do, a vocation, a calling. They were to work for him. We saw this two weeks ago. In Wilson's sermon in John 20, verses 19 to 23, they were called by Jesus to be filled with God's breath and sent into the world the way the Father sent the Son. And so what we're seeing here is that when you try to do your work on your own, in your own way, it can be quite frustrating. And there can be a lot of failure. They labor all night and they don't catch anything. And it's not because they don't know how. They do. They were fishermen raised by fishermen. 
The only way for them is to admit their defeat, listen again to the voice of Jesus, and do what he says. And when they do that, surprise, surprise, the net is so full they can barely haul it in. All of us, every single human is called to salvation in Christ. And each one of us is called to work for Jesus, to represent Jesus Christ in our family life, in our church membership, in the workplace, and in our community. These five callings to Jesus, to family, to church, to work, to your city. This is the web of interconnected callings that encompasses the whole of our lives, and this is how God heals the world. Look at it this way. God heals people. How does he typically heal people? When a physician and a vast network of people supporting that vocation, nurses, CNAs, pharmacists, physical therapists, when they come into somebody's life, that is typically the way Jesus heals people in our world. And those jobs that those people are doing, those are callings that can be undertaken well or badly, and they form a realm in which we bless others and we function as God's healing hands in this world. And you can trace that out in every vocation. But notice, what, what do we learn about work in this passage? Whether it's the work of fishing or whatever else. What we learn in this simple story of the disciples' all-night failure of a fishing trip. We learn that our work is, first of all, dependent on God. Primarily, it is God working through us. And secondarily, it is our actions. So think of all the Christians in Harrisonburg. You know, the church of God in Harrisonburg is incarnation and the Catholic church and the Mennonite churches and the Lutheran churches and, and the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the, and the Pentecostals. Think of the church of Harrisonburg and think of all the Christians in this city, each one of us called by God into the various places of this city, into art and science and government and business and education and mental health and agriculture and retail and food service and engineering and medicine and, and civil services. And it's through all of us in our work, in these spheres, that we identify with the cross when we experience the toil. And we identify with the resurrection as our labors foreshadow the glorified culture of the new heavens and the new earth. So we must stand in the world, refusing to abandon any aspect of this world to its own devices. And we must see this entire world as the territory where God is building his kingdom. And so this world, our work lives that give us so much suffering, we must call it back to God. We must wake up again tomorrow and go back to our jobs and lay our hands on our work and say, God's blessing on you. May God renew you. You belong to God. He died to redeem this. And the second part of this world that we must refuse to abandon, in addition to our work, is our food. If this is a story about work, 
This is certainly a story about food from start to bottom, right? It's about catching food and cooking food and preparing and sharing food. This story is all about food. Don't don't try to be super spiritual about it. It's about eating. And you know what? The way eating and food permeates John 21, 1 to 14, it permeates the Bible. So much of the Bible is about food and eating. It's a big deal in the Bible. It shows up all over the place. It's on the first page of the Bible, God preparing food. It's on the last page of the Bible, the promise of food for everyone. Like we saw on Ash Wednesday, when God created humans, he gave them two commands, and the second one was to eat. And the final thing God says, the final statement God makes before looking at creation and declaring it very good, the last thing God says is food is my gift. Food is a gift. And then the catastrophe of Genesis chapter 3, the breaking of all things, revolves around a meal and food. And when we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, we see in technicolor detail The full range of issues with broken food and eating. We see viticulture and gardening and cultivation and farming and feasting and eating and drinking. It's all in Ecclesiastes, broken and meaningful. And then Song of Solomon is this incredible development of how food is central to our integration of rural and urban life. And then when you go to the book of Proverbs, in the climactic moment of the book, you have the valiant woman who, quote, brings her food from afar and provides food for her household and engages in viticulture. We could go on and on. The Bible is chucked full of commands and reflections and stories about food and eating and drinking. Why? Because it's a really big deal to God. It's huge to God. It's not incidental. It's not the stage on which the drama of life plays out that God is interested in. I mean, just think about the Gospels. Think about how often they mention Jesus' habit of sharing meals and providing meals. Think about Luke's Gospel, how Jesus just seems to go from party to party like a college student. Think of John's Gospel that starts with a food miracle, wine at a wedding, and ends, we're seeing, with a food miracle. And then there's Jesus' temptation that starts with food. And there's the Lord's prayer that he gave us that has a line about food right in the middle of it. And ultimately, don't ever forget, one of the primary reasons Jesus was killed was because of how he ate. He ate with sinners. Now remember, Jesus died to redeem everything. Nothing is left out of that. And, and so we, when, we, when I say we have to refuse to abandon any part of this world to its own devices, surely food is one of them. If it comes up on all, all these pages of the Bible, if it's at the creation, if it's in the resurrection stories, I mean, if you were picking out resurrection stories and you could only get a few of them in there to try to show people what the new heavens and new earth is like, whatever you put in there is not incidental. We must call every aspect of this world back to God. We must learn to look at every aspect of this world through the lens of the gospel and say, how is it broken? And what does its redemption look like? So how do we do that with food? Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us lots of help. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So that, we've got to think about what does it mean to relate to food? Just like we've got to ask, what does it mean to relate to work? 
for the glory? How do we relate to food for the glory of God? How do we eat in a way that brings glory to God? Is there even a way of eating that doesn't glorify God? Well, I think the way to start thinking about food is to start where the Bible starts teaching us about food. The first step to relating to food and to using food and eating in a way that brings glory to God, in a way that is laying a hand on it and calling it blessed and calling it back from its brokenness, is to begin with the recognition that it is a gift from God. That's where the Bible starts. That's why Christians have a habit of stopping before they eat and saying, thank you, God. Because that's where the Bible starts with food. Listen again to our Old Testament passage out of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a person than that they should eat and drink and find enjoyment in their labor. Notice what he's done. He's connected food and work. Jesus connects food and work. And and what's the connection between them? Learning to enjoy them. And isn't that one of the difficulties with work? Now, what's the key to enjoying food and work? It's the next line. This I saw is from the hand of God. It's gratitude. Notice, not only do we see eating and work linked in John 21, we see it linked here. And the way eating and drinking for the glory of God, the way working for the, the way this happens is when you recognize fundamentally you didn't do it. No matter how big your role in it was. At the end of the day, God gave you the gift. Remember I said a few minutes ago, the final thing God says before he declares everything is good is that food is a gift. That's where we start. Food is God's gift to us. And recognizing this is the the first step in a way of eating that brings glory to the giver. And joy is the simplest form of gratitude. You know that. You know that when you gave a gift to a child at Christmas. Their joy is the purest form of gratitude. That's what Ecclesiastes gets at by connecting gift and pleasure. Eating with the fullest pleasure is the profoundest act of gratitude to the God who made a world with tomatoes and shrimp. And we could just stop right there. That's shrimp creole. It's like the highest point of culture that the Cajun world has given the world, given to us. Think of a meal where you suddenly stopped in your tracks, struck by the gift of the food and the preparation. This, I think, is why so many families Celebrate birthdays with meals. It's an act. It's a gift to give to this one we're celebrating. Gratitude and joy are the essential components in eating for the glory of God. But just like with work, food is broken in our world today. The thing that God cares so much about that saturates his scriptures, the food is broken in our world today. The food chain in the West is one of the most 
broken parts of culture. It is every bit as broken as sexuality. The literature on the abuse of land, animals, plants, and food is so extensive. We are without excuse. And it is utterly disturbing. The destruction of nature is one of the most horrid blasphemies in our world today. What pornography does to sex, the industrial food complex does to eating. It degrades it. And evangelicals are so up in arms over pornography. But if anybody starts talking about food, we start accusing them of some liberal progressive agenda. And it's funny, the liberals, the progressives, they're up in arms about food. But you try to talk about their sex life, and you're accused of being puritanical. We're Christians. We don't play by that two-party system. We see every domain as a place we refuse to abandon. So what do we do? How do do we refuse to abandon food and eating to the broken place it's become in our culture today? Where Jesus here in John 21 lays his hand on food and he lays his hand on work and he blesses it. The key is gratitude and joy. Wendell Berry is one of our best guides on this. He is a deeply thoughtful Christian who has reflected on the relationship of the gospel and the cross and the resurrection to food for decades. And he gives seven practical steps we can take to try to get some degree of God's glory in the way we relate to food. Seven practical steps. He says, grow something. Two, prepare some of your food yourself. Number three, know the origins of the food you eat. and Try to eat as much locally as you can afford. Number four, whenever possible, deal directly with farmers and gardeners. Number five, learn something about the technology of industrial food production in the world. You gotta know something of the brokenness here. Number six, learn what constitutes good gardening, good farming. Number seven, learn what you can about the life histories of food that you eat. Now look, all of that is just him trying to think, how can I have a joyful meal? And not the kind of meal that just like is a a filling station on the the way. Look, all of creation, every nook and cranny, nature and culture, all of it was created for God's glory. And this world was made, every aspect of it, so that the majesty of God's glory would be reflected in it to the praise of his name. And the cross and the resurrection, they are about the recovery of that. And nothing less than God's glory is at stake in our work and in our eating. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry out, mine. So let's go for it. Let's refuse to abandon work or food or any other aspect of this world to its own devices. And finally, third, notice how evangelism is a part of this story also. Look at John chapter 21, look at verse six. 
And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, did you hear the word haul? Right? They were not able to haul it in. All right. In Greek, it's the word elko. All right? And it literally in Greek, this word, you look it up in the dictionary, the definition is to draw, to attract, to haul in. It's used two other times in John's gospel. Listen to when it's used. John chapter 6, verse 41, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Elko, same word. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then it comes up next in John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will, Elko, draw, haul in all people to myself. So in John chapter 21, the whole fishing thing, it's not only teaching us about work and about food, it's also Jesus performing a parable with the disciples about evangelism. In fact, we don't have time to go into it now, but the Old Testament reading that we change that's listed in your worship guide, Ezekiel 47 verses 1 to 10, this weird detail about how many fish they caught, 153, it's... um, It's a weird way that back then they related scripture passages to each other by making each letter have a numerical equivalent and what it adds up to in one word. If it adds up to the same in a different word, it's a way of relating two passages. It's called gematria. It's super like unmodern, um, but it's what a lot of the world did before the enlightenment dawned. And um, it's going on in this passage. And what John is doing is saying, what we're seeing here is, Ezekiel 47, come true. What we're seeing here is that the church evangelizes the world. That's part of our calling. To tell others the good news that Jesus is the Lord. And through the victory of the cross and the resurrection, he's defeated death and secured justice and offers forgiveness of sins. And if you will believe in Jesus, all of your sins will be forgiven and your wounds will be healed and all that is not Christ in you will be purified. And when you die, you will rest in peace in heaven until the new creation. And so now look how all of this fits together, evangelism and food and work. Notice when we live out a Christian life, in all of its fullness, when we learn how to eat with joy and gratitude and pleasure for the glory of God, when we learn how to go back to work with gratitude and pleasure, and when when we do these things, when we work for the glory of God and talk about the glory of God, we will become, like Jesus on the shore, surprises. We will surprise people. People will notice that our thinking and our speaking and our eating and our working invites questions like, who are these people? Who are these people that attend to broken lives and broken bodies who reconcile enemies, who promote justice and love mercy and who go from party to party and who sanctify business dealings and overturn racial and cultural barriers? Who are these people filled with gratitude and joy? By whose power do they act? You see, we've got to resist any and every attempt to reduce the gospel, to minimize Christ's redemption to only a few certain parts of our lives. Christ's lordship is as broad as creation. If you can see it, he died for it. If you can hear it, he died for it. If you can imagine it or think about it, he died for it. 
The church must stand in the world. We must refuse to abandon the world. We must see the entire world as a territory, God, where he intends to build his kingdom. And so this world that gives us so much suffering, may God give us grace today. And may tomorrow we go back into it and live for his glory. Let's pray.